This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to spring. Not a very inviting day with the weather, but promise of better days ahead. I'm Jan Bartlett and I present Tuesday Home Time for the next two hours. Then done by law on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR. Analog 3CR 8.55am, digital at 3CR or via the webpage 3cr.org.au for streaming and podcasts. Today, whistleblowers. Why do people blow the whistle? What happens when they do? And why aren't there proper protections? We'll hear all that from Dr. Benoit Campmark, lecturer at RMIT University. Kids making weapons for governments and the weapons manufacturers, it's happening here in Australia and teachers and parents are fighting back. Voluntary at the moment, but could it be compulsory? I'll be speaking with Hamish McPherson, a teacher at a Benalla primary school. Second part of the history of Guatemala, the largest country in Central America, with PhD candidate, broadcaster and researcher Sasha Gillies-Lukakis. John Krupel performed at one of the many concerts in Hiroshima to remember the bombing 78 years ago. He'll talk about his experiences and meeting with the people of Hiroshima and a few survivors. But we must not forget our friend Mr Kevin Healy and here he is with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when we finally have a date for those who don't want true blue Aussies to be divided by race to vote no to recognising the terra nullius non-land non-people as a race. The two terra nullius non-land non-people leading the no campaign telling us that recognising them would divide us on race because Jacinta, Warren, like... There's no history of racial divide, war, slaughter in True Blue Aussie these past 235 years. The Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect columnist, bolt through the head and other Lord Rupert acolytes agree. Interesting how they use race to argue they're not racists. We can understand terra nullius non-land non-people who argue the voice proposal is inadequate, doesn't go far enough, but that's a different story. We could have had bipartisan support if only the socialists had given poor, caring, business-class supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer the detail he so desired. Sought with such sincerity, detail, detail, detail. No thought of obfuscation. And now poor Peter's uncovered yet another barrier to a fair vote, the, the voting system itself. It's loaded against his side. Obviously, those who developed the voting system a hundred and whatever years ago foresaw this referendum and created a system designed to thwart Pete, add to the political confusion which Pete uncovered. If you don't know, vote no, like he sloganises. Not much of an argument, because in Pete's case, don't know covers just about everything. He, he probably knows his own name. Probably, because Pete certainly lacks a fair bit, well, to be fair, heaps, in the intellect department, which probably explains why he says no to everything, because if you don't know, say no, like you know. When in fact, of course, you don't know like. 
like Pete went out of his way to prove the point by announcing his own referendum and then accusing those opposing nuclear power as political dinosaurs putting the country on a path to lights out, like you know. Kind of half correct, because the nuclear power he so desires would certainly see us all go the way of the dinosaurs. Reported last week how the most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, called for evil union representation on the Reserve Losses Bank Board, prompting caring business class shadow economic guru Angus Tailings to come up with a stunning fact of which we had absolutely no idea that the most evil of evil unions paid big economic guru Jim Chalmers capital and big supremo Anthony Albinguzzi's salaries when we thought they were paid by the public purse. This will be a test for Jim Chalmers' capital and Anthony Albinguzzi's leadership. Will they bend to the pressure of their union paymasters or do the right thing and preserve the independence of our key economic institutions? You'll recall he shared his wisdom and concern for the delicate flower that is the economy. We shared his awareness that unlike ignorant single-minded workers, only caring employers and the filthy rich can bring independence to these matters. Think for both caring employers and their lazy avaricious workforces. Of course, former Big Supremo Nuclear Hawk himself appointed former ACTU Secretary Little Billy Kiltham to the board, as Gough Whitlam had earlier appointed Nuclear Hawk when Nuke was ACTU president, but Angus and caring employers this time fear the socialists might appoint someone who is a threat to the caring employers and therefore to all of us. Whereas Hawke's main contribution to the interest of the workers whom he represented was to call for a wage freeze. Kind of like what we've got now unofficially. Let the public purse pick up wage increases through trickling a few benefits to workers, workers subsidising their own tiny wage increases through the taxes they can't avoid, while their caring employers are subsidised for the wage increases they do avoid from the taxes they also avoid. Win-win. Oh yes, that nuclear hawk was a giant of the labour movement. Unfortunately, the unofficial wage freeze these past several years has not been freeze enough to prevent serious problems for caring employers like Big Trublawazi, BHP, Bloody Huge Profits, Bloody Huge Polluter Offshoot, South 30, Never Too Much Profit, which joined a chorus of caring employers pointing out proposed caring business class relations laws would make life just impossible crush productivity, and in South 30, never too much profits case, exacerbate an already impossible situation with worker greed, with wages. As Supremo Graham curse workers stressed labour costs, that is, wages and all those crippling work practices, are much more pronounced in Trublawazi than in other jurisdictions where we operate. Industrial relations reforms would set back productivity, that eternal barrier to the caring employer's desire to solve the problem of slow wages growth. Rising labour costs are the biggest headache in Trublawazi. It, it is cheaper to operate in the US of, where we're developing a base metals project, than in Trublawazi. And labour cost pressures are also less of an issue in South America and Southern Africa. And we all know how companies like South 30 never too much treat their workers and the environment in those places.
showing in even greater magnitude the greed of Trublawazi workers, and given Graham's clear rapport and concern about working people, it's difficult to comprehend how workers at its Appen mine in New South Wales have been on strike for three weeks. Why would they be upset with Graham and the boardroom team who know lots more about the industry than they do? In great workers. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Caring employers would be better off without them. Graham and the board, get rid of this impediment to profits and head down to the mine and do the work yourselves. So that'd show workers at evil unions they're unnecessary for the delicate flower of the economy to do its thing. That they're only employed because caring employers see providing jobs as their raison d'etre through the sheer goodness of their big, generous hearts. Like the big, generous heart of our old mate industry profits group Supremo, Innes will cost the workers, who warned us that if caring employers were forced to treat gig workers as, wait for it, as workers, we would lose thousands of jobs, presumably because they'd have to be paid and crucify their employers with those crippling work practices like time off, holidays, for God's sake, sick leave, superannuation, penalty rates, oh, it's endless. And we can but imagine how these threats must tug at Innes's warm, caring heart. Not sure where he dragged the thousands of workers from, but Innes knows what he's talking about. So we'll take his word for it. He, he did say workers would be double-dipping, and caring employers said the legislation would set Trublowazi back decades and would hurt consumers while the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations conceded the new rules would cost caring employers more because obviously it would cost more if they had to pay their workers, or sorry, contractors, and top marks to the commercial telenews the other night picking up the caring employers' concern for consumers. For all of us, well, except the workers involved, angling its story, delivered meals will cost us more under new legislation planned by the government uncaring delivery contractors, not workers, showing no concern for the very customers who keep them contracted. The telly news clearly thought these workers, sorry, or contractors are already well enough off. And if, like so many other Trublowazis, they rent, then sure, they can enjoy the news this week that inflation had dropped a little bit, a smidge, although it turned out there had been huge increases in a few areas, like rents and electricity. So renters turning on the lights or keeping themselves warm or cooking a meal must be over the moon at the lower inflation they're enjoying and can keep on enjoying before they land in the gutter. Trying to avoid landing in the gutter, our esteemed banks asking to be carved out of mooted legislation to regulate artificial intelligence. As an aside, if AI meant an intelligence implant, Constable Duffer would be head of Q. Carved out their term because bank spokesperson and former socialist state supremo Anna Blight on workers explained the government must consider whether the legislation needs to apply to specific highly regulated sectors such as the banking sector. Poor highly regulated banks and we know just how much they're struggling on which we've pointed out the airline which used to be our airline was privatised by the socialists because they told us the public sector could not compete with the super-efficient private sector airlines. Yet, since then, economic tenets have obviously reversed 100%, because 
every time the private airline which used to be faces competition, we're told it must be protected because the private airline which used to be can't compete with state-owned airlines which have a huge advantage. Opposing the very competition the private sector tells us helps us all will help the private shareholders and top marks to the government for bending over backwards to ensure those shareholders reap fortunes while their customers cop it in the neck. Including the airline which used to be pocketing airfares for flights that they cancelled ages ago, learning from the banks and financial institutions which specialised in charging fees for no service. And by taking money for flights that don't exist, the airline the government said it couldn't afford could theoretically demand less corporate welfare, the trillions it extracts from the public purse, but only theoretical, because Supremo Alan Joystick is always seen with his hand out. Incredibly, the poor airline which used to be is being charged for doing what business does best, charged for no service. But perhaps someone should remind the government, as it offers reason number 133 for why it banned competition to the airline which used to be, that we don't own it anymore, that we don't have to keep paying for it. And finally, as AMP for all members pissed off, Chief Economist Shane um, Olive to give advice is regularly employed by the media to advise us as a financial expert. A couple of the super-efficient private super funds like AMP have been ordered by the regulator to tell their customers they'd be better off in a fund which actually made money for them, as the private retail funds failed the so-called performance test. What those funds run by evil unions and workers outperforming the brilliant private sector? How could that be, listener? Good afternoon. And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. And don't forget, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, you can hear more of Kevin and his friends with City Limits until 10am. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, 
It has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home well drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Whistleblowers, governments like to promote how important they are in a democratic society, but when it comes to implementing laws to successfully protect whistleblowers who speak out, the laws are mostly inadequate or worse against those seeking to expose wrongdoings. Today I'm speaking with Dr Benoit Campmark, who is a lecturer at RMIT University here in Melbourne. And Benoit, can we begin with the definition of a whistleblower. Is it straightforward? Well, on the surface it can. It seems to be straightforward, and at least on first inspection. So a whistleblower generally is an individual who your listeners can imagine the image of a person blowing the whistle upon misconduct. And so they draw attention to faults in an organization, malpractice, you know, problematic practices, and so on. And by doing so, supposedly improve the efficiency of the organization, um, ensure compliance, a range of these things. So whistleblowers, at least uh, when it comes to the theory of it, are meant to be praised. They're meant to be seen as very constructive components of an organization. But sadly, the practice in history shows that they are some of the least trusted and most reviled individuals because they do give the game away. They do show the internal workings of an organization and they do do the thing that is frowned upon, you know, the Australian term dobbing in and so on. 
and that's something that's considered very problematic and, and difficult. Does this apply to private and public? Well, in Australia, Australia has a problem there, which is that unlike uh, many countries, say, for example, or the European Union with its member states, Australia tends to distinguish uh, the private sector and the public sector. So the private sector protections on blowing the whistle about corporate malfeasance and um, misconduct and aspects like that within corporations is actually better than it is under the public um, interest protections known as the Public Interest Disclosure Act, certainly at the Commonwealth level. In fact, it's very problematic and it's been shown time and time again to be very difficult to navigate and use, uh, which is one of the reasons why, I mean, I would argue it's essentially a fairly toothless instrument. And why is it separate? This is a curious thing about the, the way respective governments have tried to approach it. So they've tended to see them as distinct entities. I would argue that this is the reason this has been done is that there's been a lot of stonewalling and resistance to reforming a very secretive culture in Canberra, um, a very secretive approach to information. It's remarkable, actually, when you start looking at Australia as an example to other countries, certainly liberal democratic countries. Australia has an incredibly secretive approach to government information. And uh, it's been revealed recently that this, to take one example, that the government is refusing more than ever to comply, say, with Senate requests to produce documents citing a range of national security considerations and so on, that it's in the public interest, not for the public to know. And that's, I think, a huge problem in it. We see that. So I would say that in Australia, uh, there's a distinction drawn that has been drawn between the corporate aspect and the public, which has been very zealously guarded by the public servants. So you say this is only the federal government or a state government's guilty of that as well? State governments on various levels also have the same problems, but they're not as bad as the Commonwealth. So each of the states, um, they do also have very... They can be reluctant to disclose materials, say, for example, to, par to Parliament, the executive, and so on, maybe reluctant. But having said that, I would say that the primary problem, especially when it comes to whistleblowing protections, is at the Commonwealth level. They are, they're sort of more solid in some ways at various other levels of the state, but not when it comes to the Commonwealth. Well, what are the protections there at the moment for whistleblowers? Well, generally speaking, so if we were to take uh, the context of the Public Interest Disclosure Act, um, generally speaking, and we need to consider now that there are more protections in like with the Anti-Corruption Commission that is now coming to force. So supposedly the Corruption Commission will be able to then feel complaints and you don't have to be concerned about retribution from the Commonwealth government by filing a complaint, say, with the National anti-corruption commission so from that perspective you know the service started in july so you know um, and they're starting to feel complaints now it, it's a bit better but quite frankly the only real protections you can otherwise have are that if you have made legitimate disclosure and remember it has to be legitimate disclosure as deemed legitimate by be it the courts or be it by the authorities um, only then can you secure protection against retribution uh, protection against sackings you know, demotions, all these sorts of instruments uh, that uh, bu bureaucracies and governments use against whistleblowers. So it's very patchy because you have to go through a series of steps before you can avail yourself of these protections and be immune from legal prosecution, which is very difficult. Immune from prosecution? Do you explain that? 
Yes, so uh, so one of the keys about the whistleblowing protection laws is to secure the immunity of a person from legal action if they can demonstrate that they made a legitimate public disclosure and therefore by being immune they cannot then be penalized. Unfortunately, establishing that immunity is almost nigh impossible because you have to demonstrate, as for example Richard Boyle failed to do to um, uh, the judge, in question, Richard Boyle, you know, for listeners, uh, the ATO whistleblower, who's going to be facing trial, you know, later this year, you know, for revealing, uh, quite frankly, terrible conduct on the part of the ATO debt services. You know, he he failed to avail himself of the Public Interest Disclosure Act because he went through gathering evidence, which was considered by the judge an act of vigilante justice, which is incredible. The only way you can make a legitimate public disclosure is obviously to gather evidence. But in gathering evidence, you need to breach computer protocol laws. You need to copy material on confidential servers. And that's the huge problem with these laws. They don't offer protections in that sense. And Richard Boyle is only just one example? Yes, Richard Boyle is but one example. There are various other prominent examples. We know, for example, that a very prominent individual is David McBride, who was a key informant and individual who provided material on alleged Australian war crimes and atrocities in Afghanistan, especially by the special forces. And he was a, a seminal uh, source when it came to distributing or providing the ABC with documents that also became important in fi- establishing, of course, the Brereton inquiry that revealed instances of abuse in Afghanistan. Well, if it's so difficult for claimants to succeed... Is it the way the law is framed? It's the way the judges interpret the law? Is it the lawyers who aren't experienced? Well, it's all of the above. Yeah, it's all of the above. It's essentially that we can start with the first point, which is primarily the, the cumbersome nature of the law. The law itself is carved out, in any case, already carves up um, and makes it impossible, virtually impossible, to disclose uh, abuse uh, by the intelligence services because the intelligence services have their own disclosure regime. Um, you can't disclose material that might be, for example, um, you know, compromising the Australian national interest that could be used by a foreign government and so on. So that immediately disposes the person to wonder how on earth do you then disclose, for example, what happened with the East uh, Timorese diplomatic delegation negotiating with the Australians with the Timor Gap Treaty. That instance involved a, an ASIS agent bugging, of course, bugging the particular quarters and then subsequently revealed that that was the case, you know, uh, having suffered an attack of conscience. And that would be impossible under the Public Interest Disclosure Act because that's covered by intel- intelligence protocols. It's covered by the intelligence security regime in Australia. Um, as for other things, what constitutes a reasonable time in terms of at what point when an internal complaint is resolved or not. So you make an internal complaint, but you need to wait. So you need to actually wait for your internal complaint to be processed in the organization before then appealing it or taking it to some other individual or some body that's legitimately accepted within it. But external disclosure to the press, for example, is considered very problematic. And the judges, how are they trained? Well, um, the judges are bound by the rules and by the regulations they can only resort to. So, for example, um, in the context of the judge referring to Boyle's case, uh, there was some sympathy with the fact that 
statutes like the Public Interest Disclosure Act are very vaguely worded and are cumbersome and need reform. And it's been accepted in several recommendations, for example, the Hawke report um, examining the PIDA, the Public Interest Disclosure Act, saying that it's in desperate need for clarification. It's in desperate need of also, and this is perhaps one of the most important features of it, the establishment of an independent whistleblower authority that would support whistleblowers, would actually enable them to navigate this particular field, which is a difficult one. So the laws need to be refined and clarified in terms of what constitutes legitimate disclosure. And the second thing is a whistleblowing authority needs to be provided and established that would improve the culture and provide assistance. Well, let's look at the retribution for people who failed to win their case. Do you have examples? classic cases in point are any of the national security cases that have involved disclosures and whatnot that have, for example, the Witness K case is the classic case in point. Witness K had made defenses along the way, had legitimately sought the interests of, of course, his lawyer, Bernard Collieri, who himself was also prosecuted. And this was also meant to follow the rules of disclosure, that legitimate disclosure and so on. But this failed abysmally. Um, again, uh, the resort to the national security dimension was considered so important that it overrode any such considerations. Um, and Boyle's case, uh, and specifically to Boyle's case, he's already lost that side of, of, of course, using the PIDA, which means that he will in all likelihood be convicted on charges that will land him in prison for anyway up to three decades. We'll have to see. It may, maybe even more, it depends. So it's it's put into an absurd situation where individuals simply cannot rely on using the PIDA, the Public Interest Disclosure Act, in any reasonable way or reliable way. Do you have a phone ringing in the background? No, it's actually a minor bird, yes. What about the private sector? So the private sector has better rules in terms of disclosure because there's been this, this sort of uh, interest, I suppose, in... in um, uh, disclosing losses and and you know how corporate misconduct can take the sort of take place and so on. So, but that has also been a fairly recent phenomenon. And it's some years ago, uh, corp- the the corporations laws were adjusted to enable individuals working in organisations to make disclosures on corporate malfeasance and so forth. So, there's been interestingly enough, there's been more of an interest in that direction, as I said to you before, than there has been dealing with the public sector for the various reasons outlined before. Well, does Australia stand out as a, a country that's pretty harsh on whistleblowers or is it over the board? No, it is. It is Well, generally over the board, whistleblowing is, is a problematic thing. So take, for example, if you look at the, uh, the Dutch example, the Dutch actually have on paper some very strong rules and a whistleblowing authority dealing with you know, whistleblowing on, on misconduct, um, in, in, certainly in, in both public and corporate sector. But uh, the issue with that particular thing is that there have even been complaints that the rules have not been effective enough because there is still a, a culture of resistance from the bureaucracy to accept that certain things uh, should be reported. And so so that's the, that's considered one of the top examples, you know, the, the Dutch example. But then you've got Australia that's one of the worst examples because there's simply no apparatus that gives support uh, to whistleblowers, which means that sometimes either they don't understand the law, they might misuse it, or it might be, as it were, dealt with in a particular way. So Australia is unfortunate in that regard because it does have a a long track record, especially on national, national security measures, 
of uh, you know, punishing individuals who disclose such matters. What about the UN Convention on Whistleblowers? Well, the UN Convention um, advocates, uh, of course, guidelines and has uh, declaratory provisions on the subject. But unfortunately, as, as with a lot of these things regarding the same thing with the UN Convention dealing with combating corruption and, and these particular conventions, these are very important documents, but they are and they do provide guidelines to governments uh, in terms of dealing with, uh, you know, matters of protecting whistleblowers. But these are only tools and yardsticks. There's no mechanism of review, even in the UN context, on that as they would be, even for the UN, um, you know, for the uh, Human Rights Committee and things like that. So that also offers its own problems. Well, into the scene here in Australia is that the Human Rights Law Centre has launched a dedicated service to bolster the legal defence of whistleblowers. Good idea? Yes, it is certainly a good idea. I mean, in the absence of, uh, you know, in the absence of any formalised independent body, any, you know, civil society group or any entity willing to supply assistance, any NGO and so on, in terms of that, is more than welcome. And I know that the society there is a very good one in, in terms of providing that. But... Uh, ultimately, in the absence of a statutory, a dedicated statutory authority that has the expertise and, and the facilities and the resources to aid whistleblowers, there'll be continued reluctance and concern about coming forth with claims. And what will happen is that individual whistleblowers will have to manage their own risk. They'll have to navigate it with their lawyers and navigate it themselves. And as, for example, you know, Mr. Boyle has done, and we'll have to deal with uh, the difficulties about uh, any instance when an application you know, for protection is applied for to fail. Well, as you said, it makes people think twice about whether they should proceed. But I did read a, a, just a quote, we need to know what we don't know. Well, precisely, and this is the whole point. And if I may um, draw your listeners to that famous you know, discussion about secrecy, about bureaucracy by uh, the German sociologist Max Weber, who said that bureaucracy's creation, one of the great creations and the most infamous creations of bureaucracy, is the official secret. And the official secret is defended fanatically. So any efforts to open up these closed doors, to shine light on the information that we don't know, is combated and fought tooth and nail by the authorities all the time. Well, just finally, Binoy, where do we sit now with Julian Assange from what you've been saying? Yes, this is a very uh, a troubling state of affairs, of course, Jan, and uh, I think the situation so far is that there have been mutterings, the possibility, which I think is quite frankly just that, it's just muttering, it's not actually concrete, that uh, the United States might be offering um, a plea deal in the context of what happens with, uh, with Assange. But this, I would say, is uh, just yet another floating you know, of uh, a possible consension that's bound to or unlikely to take place. The Albanese government claims it's been doing a lot in this regard and trying to bring the matter to a close. But it's also very clear from freedom of information requests that have been made, published and discussed in Declassified Australia, that the go-slow attitude is what they're waiting for. They're essentially waiting for a conviction. They're waiting for Assange to go to the States to be convicted. And then, and only then, might they be a possibility that he might serve the rest of his term or there might be a plea deal. 
completed so that he might come back and return to Australia. But there's absolutely no suggestion that the charges will be dropped. And there's absolutely no suggestion that uh, there's no clue necessarily that the United States is going to ease off on those, you know, 18 you know, charges on the, the indictment, even though the U.S. ambassador, Caroline Kennedy, has mooted the point that it might happen. But that's all she's said. You know, I know there's uh, very little to suggest otherwise that that's the, that's the case. It may also be dangerous for him to come back to Australia, too, because first of the national security rules here and the fact that he's just exchanging one jailer for another. So what will happen is he will simply end up in a security confined place here in Australia where he will not be able to do his publishing or his public interest work which he's famed for doing. And of course, when we think of the, the wonderful work that WikiLeaks has done over those years, and I speak to people and they say, well, all this information we've talked about today, it wouldn't be possible without WikiLeaks. Yes, sir, you're absolutely right. I think one of the, um, if ever, anyone ever points to or asks me, for example, about one of the remarkable roles that WikiLeaks has played in history, uh, because uh, some of the arguments have often been made that, well, let's not exaggerate the influence of WikiLeaks. You know, it's it's just, it, it's it's sort of a, an epiphenomenon rather than anything else. I come back with always the response, if it were not for WikiLeaks, a phenomenon like the Arab Spring would have happened later, if at all, because documents published by WikiLeaks actually were used directly in the protest movements, certainly in Tunisia, for example, and the overthrow of the Ben Ali regime. I think these are classic cases in point. It mobilizes activism. It gets people talking. It also, importantly, holds governments to power, which is such an important thing to do. Thank you, Binoy. Always a pleasure, Jan. Anytime. And I've been speaking with Dr. Binoy Campmark, who lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to three cr.org.au and get in touch.
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Today we focus on the nuclear-powered submarine propulsion challenge in Australian high schools, which defence claims will provide a new generation of science, technology, engineering and mathematics that STEM students the chance to win the trip to HMAS Stirling in Western Australia and see firsthand how these submarines work. Sounds a great idea. Maybe if you don't think too deeply about it, but if you do, pause and think again. It's purpose to teach children as young as high school students to make weapons. There is a growing momentum with unions Australia-wide, indeed teachers, and I would imagine parents to ban this program. I spoke at the weekend with Hamish McPherson, a teacher at a primary school in Benalla, in rural Victoria. He's also an AEU delegate. But for this interview, he is speaking as a teacher. I asked him first how this nuclear-powered submarine propulsion challenge would affect schools in his area. Well, the nuclear-powered propulsion challenge is an optional curriculum program that's been um, offered by the Department of Defence in conjunction with this organisation called STEM Hub. So we were quite surprised to see it advertised through the Department of Education's a weekly bulletin, email bulletin to schools, which usually outlines lots of really terrific positive learning opportunities and teaching programs that we can use in our classrooms. This program is very biased. It's not trying to offer a balanced learning experience to students. Students are basically, they're, they're seeking high school students, teams of high school students to actually design plans for nuclear propelled submarines. And its real purpose is to try to according to its own website, to develop student interest in the Australian Defence Force and submariner careers in the Navy and to actually compare nuclear-powered submarines versus diesel-electric submarines. So, yeah, we, at, at a school level, in our um, regional union branch, we held a meeting around staffing shortages and other issues that we face, but we also discussed this curriculum and the fact that it really is out of place in our school system. So it sort of came out of the blue, would you say? Oh, yes, certainly. I think this is quite a new development in schools, and I think it it comes following the AUKUS pact, as far as I can tell, because it's very blatant about trying to, I guess, develop students' interests and and, and a future workforce in supporting the design and construction of nuclear submarines. And it was actually launched by... Uh, a vice admiral from the Australian Nuclear Submarine Task Force who spoke about those kind of things. But it's very out of keeping with the usual kind of uh, curriculum approach where students would look at, you know, different sides of a question or a situation. Um, When I looked into this challenge further, there's no um, effort even to look at the risks or dangers associated with nuclear technology um, at all. So um, it is an optional program. So many 
teachers and schools will be deciding that it's not something they want to pursue. But we still think it's in our union sub-branch and in other Australian education regional branches have been discussing this. And we think it's important that we take a stand against this as educators to say that it's not appropriate to have such curriculum which actually encourages students to engage in the design of military technology in this way. We've had, obviously, in the curriculum, long-standing subjects in, say, history, looking, you know, so where students can learn about the history of warfare in, you know, the World War II or World War One, and consider some of the ethical questions around that, as well as the historical facts. But that's quite different to a curriculum which is intended to encourage students to essentially be a soft recruiting tool for future military careers. And they're sort of inculcating the teachers into being part of that as well. Yes, certainly. And I think one of the concerning things is that as I looked into this a bit further, there is a range of programs being offered by companies, by weapons companies, essentially, organisations like BAE Systems, who are putting quite a lot of investment into curriculum programs that they can offer to schools. So there's another program called Beacon, which is offered to year four to six students and where they focus on virtual reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, you know, all things that are really interesting and and worthwhile. But when it's sponsored by a a weapons systems company are, are a real concern. To sort of go back to the submarine challenge, to give an example of, of its purpose, the, the winning teams from each state are being offered a, the prize is actually a flight, all included, you know, flight and accommodation trip to Perth to visit the HMAS Sterling Base, which is actually the base where the US Virginia class submarines, the nuclear powered submarines will be rotated through and students and teachers will be offered a tour of an Australian submarine and, you know, driving a 3D motion simulator of a submarine and and these kind of activities. It really is, we think, public education and curriculum being misused essentially for propaganda and recruitment purposes for the AUKUS military program, which, you know, in itself is controversial. There's a lot of um, legitimate questions and debate and and opposition around that uh, military alliance that's developing. And, yeah, we just I think it's really important that we don't allow our schools to misuse to support that kind of a program. And you can imagine impressionable teenagers being absolutely excited about something like this. Well, that's right. I mean, at a a surface level, it's, you know, it's it's new technology. It it can seem really appealing. And when I looked uh, at the details of of this and, uh, and the other courses, it can seem quite appealing. And I think that you know, it's almost a dystopian kind of vision of the future where we have, you know, students learning around about science and technology, but not for purposes that benefit society or the environment or look at challenges like climate change, but actually essentially about the construction of weapons of warfare and, and things that create death and destruction. So I think that's ethically quite concerning. Um, there are issues around the rights of children and the rights of children not to be indoctrinated essentially and to not be militarised until, you know, until they're adults and can make decisions uh, at that age. And I'm not sure whether this is quite true or not, but it seems to me that 
these nuclear-powered sub-challenge, the challenge mentions the Department of Defence and, and it mentions the, the state government, but it doesn't seem to me to be mentioning BAE Systems or any other weapons manufacturer who might be or are behind it, unless maybe you get to the finer print. Mm, that's true. Um, it is, it's a partnership between the, the Commonwealth Department of Defence and a group called STEM Hub. Takes a bit of um, research and looking into the, the, the situation to actually to establish, which I've done, that STEM Hub is sponsored by BAE Systems, which is one of the world's largest weapons companies. So they, you know, produce a magazine for schools as well, and a, and a range of other projects. But yeah, they're not really being open about who the real sponsors of the program are, and. As educators and members of the Australian Education Union, we are calling for the Victorian Department of Education and state government to cease participation in these kind of programs. Is it up to the principal of any particular school to agree to this, or is it more than that? Uh, yes, it, it would be a decision for either teams of teachers or, or the principal whether or not the school would participate in the project. So I think that there will be some, I have heard of reports of some schools participating, but there won't necessarily be a large number, but I think there will certainly be schools who are participating. They could be public or private schools. Yeah, I think we're, we're going to be taking this up as a, a national issue also. Here in Victoria, we're in contact with teachers interstate and are looking to organise as a national question and, and look and yeah look to, for support from our unions over this question as well. Australian Education Union has actually done quite a bit of policy work in the, in the more general area of concern around the privatisation of school curriculums with you know, large companies uh, funding curriculum research or curriculum and assessment programs as a profit-making uh, measure. So this is also something that the unions are concerned about at a, a general level. And there's particular policies against schools partnering with companies, for example, that are engaged with and gambling or alcohol, tobacco or, or firearms production. So, yeah, we think that those policies should be strengthened to be clearer that we shouldn't be partnering with defence or, or militarised curriculum also. Well, you're a delegate of the AEU. When's the next meeting and what are you hoping will come out of that meeting? Yeah, so we've held a meeting of our union at a regional level and there's been similar meetings, um, discussion happening in other uh, regions of the meeting, of the union, pardon me. And I know it's also being discussed by the federal executive of the Australian Education Union. So we'll be um, looking to continue this campaign and be uh, coordinating the, the campaign nationally and yeah, making sure that we get some change in this area to ensure that our schools are committed to genuine student learning and inquiry and, and focus on all the great opportunities for learning about science and technology that exist that are not connected to this kind of a, an agenda. Do principals also have an association or unions where the principals will get together and vote whether they want this or not? Some principals are members of the Australian Education Union and then there is some other prin professional principals organisations that could discuss this 
And um, I think we also are looking to make approaches to the, the union that represents teachers in independent and private and Catholic schools. So um, there's certainly avenues there for us to speak more generally with people about this. I think there'll be you know, parents and community members also who have concerns around this sort of a development in curriculum. I'd imagine there would be. Is there a timeline for this program to start? It has actually commenced, so entries are open for teams of students to engage in the, the design process of the, the nuclear-propelled submarines, and it's closing in a, in a few weeks. But given that the uh, AUKUS program potentially if it goes ahead, such a big development, you know, we expect that defence and weapons manufacturers, that this won't be the first attempt to, to hold such a, a project. So we think it's important to, this is the first time this has occurred and we want to make a clear stance now and try to prevent it from happening in the future. So you see this as this thin edge of the wedge? Well, potentially, yeah. I mean, I think one of the challenges the government faces in the whole problematic AUKUS deal is that they need to generate a, a huge workforce of, of engineers and, and, and people to build and maintain this weapon system. And so already they're looking to fund, you know, university places and, and build a future workforce, which I think is really unfortunate because we do have a skills shortage in lots of important areas of our economy and lots of important social needs and environmental needs to meet. And so this potentially will just drain expertise and, and skills from other areas. Wouldn't it be great if there was a, a huge effort to encourage more people to be training as science and engineers to be looking at the challenge of making a transition to a, a, a low-carbon economy? Um, that's going to be a massive challenge we, we really have to take up over the next decade and I think that's where the focus should be so not not in this in this uh, AUKUS program. And also what a good idea it would have been if the people of Australia had had a say in whether this AUKUS program goes ahead. Well that's right it's been very limited it was announced with great fanfare by Scott Morrison and it was adopted very quickly by the then opposition Labor opposition there really hasn't been a, a case, as far as I can tell, that's been made to the Australian people around why this is necessary. The more I look into it, the less these nuclear-powered submarines seem to have anything to do with the genuine defence of Australia. They seem designed to be very much about projecting Australia's military force right up into northern Asia, right up against China. So they're an offensive uh, weapon system and, and seem to be going along now with a, a real stepping up of a whole lot of military, uh, American military bases in Australia in terms of the, the airfields in the Northern Territory, which will base B-52 bombers and Australia committing to also purchase long-range missiles. I think all of this is really disturbing and, and dangerous and the more people understand about it, the less people will be supportive of, of this AUKUS alliance. So the meeting of the union is this week, and from there you go, where to? There are meetings at regional levels. There are further meetings of members, union members in regions this week occurring. 
we're awaiting um, outcomes of meeting at, at a national level and we'll be stepping up the campaign. Uh, there is some good resources available online through the Friends of the Earth Anti-Nuclear Collective and also an organisation called Teachers for Peace. Friends of the Earth website has you know, a letter that people can send to the relevant ministers and, and further information to get informed about this. These are resources that parents who might be concerned about this can tap into. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, there's a, a, the Friends of the Earth have produced a good website, uh, anti-nuclear collective website. Well, thank you, Hamish, and perhaps if we could speak again in a, a week or so. Yeah, certainly, Jan. That would be terrific. We'll certainly be continuing this campaign, so thanks. And Hamish McPherson is a primary school teacher at Benalla in rural Victoria. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. CR needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And now to part two of the history of the largest country in Central America, and that's Guatemala with PhD candidate Sasha Gillis-Lakakis. And we begin with 1931. Ubico is an incredibly brutal leader, and he really puts down this resistance, or he tries to put down this resistance. Some of the things that characterise his regime include a very, very stringently enforced vagrancy law, which requires all men of working age, so 18 and above, who didn't own land, to work a minimum of 100 days of hard labour, unpaid, which was most people, had to work as slaves. 
They use unpaid Indigenous labour to build roads and railways for the United Fruit Company. He throws wages at a very low level, um, and he passed a law allowing landowners complete immunity from prosecution for any act that they took that they thought was reasonable to defend their property. So essentially, he sanctioned murder because landlords, whenever Indigenous people arced up on their land, whenever they began to protest, whenever they tried to advocate for better rights and better wages, landlords could now just kill them, and that was legal an incredibly despotic, brutal regime. He does have a reputation, or we call as one of the most ruthless leaders in Latin America in its history. He continued the policy of his predecessors in granting concessions to the United Fruit Company, and he just expands this even further. So he allotted an additional 200,000 hectares, so almost 500,000 acres of public land in exchange for a promise that the United Fruit Company would build Guatemala a port, Surprise, surprise, they never built the port, but the the fruit company got the land anyway. Again, we just see this incredibly despotic regime take charge, but we see the resistance continue. And we see these mass mobilisations, these protests, we see labour unions, peasant collectives begin to organise. In 1944, so about 15 years after he he comes to power, Ubico is forced to resign by his own generals, at first, they replace him with Juan Federico Ponce Valdez, who's another Guatemalan general. But then he is overthrown in 1944 by Major Francisco Javier Arana and Captain Jacobo Arbenz. Arbenz is the critical figure here, but this is an internal coup within the Guatemalan military by progressive generals against this you know, really extreme, insane right-wing sort of trend in the armed forces. But um, Arbenz and Arana are able to muster the support of the everyday army and they oust the conservatives. A lot of these generals actually have to flee the country because of this new alliance between these progressive generals or progressive army figures, I should say, they're not generals, and the people of Guatemala, all of these people that were protesting. We see the Junta actually organises an election, the the first free election, and I would say really the last free election that Guatemala has ever had. Because, you know, these people, Jacobo Arbenz is is a progressive individual. He describes himself as a a Christian socialist sometimes. He comes to be a very popular figure. He he doesn't run in this election. We have the election of Juan José Arevalo, uh, who interestingly is the father of the man who's just won Guatemala's elections. He wants to turn Guatemala into, you know, again, this liberal capitalist country. He describes himself as a Christian Democrat. He implements policies inspired by the New Deal, by Roosevelt's New Deal. So this is the sort of individual he is politically, to give you a bit of an idea of of where he sits in terms of his policies. You know, some good um, increases to funding for public education and public health. But apart from that, not very much. He doesn't really go any further. He doesn't touch the issue of land. He continues to advocate for the United Fruit Company to obtain its presence. I will get to this when we talk about the the current Arevalo, who's just won, but I think this is part of their problem, unfortunately, and will, will continue to be a problem in Guatemala. But he completes his term, finishes in 1950, and then we have Jacobo Arbenz. He runs. And he wins, landslide. He was the defence minister under Arevalo. We see Jacobo Arbenz implement some very, very progressive reforms. Um, So again, he universalises all education, including university. He universalises or modernises the hospital system and the, the public health care network in Guatemala, or at least he begins to do that. 
But most critically, he addresses actually really this issue of land with Decree 900. And this transfers land to landless peasants, land that is owned by the land-owning elite and by the United Fruit Company to the peasant. And this was going to benefit, if it was seen through, it would have benefited 500,000 people, which is one-sixth of Guatemala's population at the time. So a really, really impressive redistribution project to actually empower mostly Indigenous poor Guatemalans. The United Fruit Company, of course, is incensed that Arbenz would consider this. The United Fruit Company says the compensation that was offered to them was not enough. Arbenz retorts very, very well, and he says, well, you actually gave us an artificially low price for the value of your land, so you don't have to pay tax. So we are going to give you compensation for what you gave our government as, you know, the value of the land. So United Fruit Company screwed itself over by, you know, giving a deliberately low value for the land so they didn't have to pay tax on it. That's the amount that Arbenz offered them in compensation in a very, very just and maybe even a bit of a cheeky sort of way. But the United Fruit Company does not take this well. They appeal to US President Truman to overthrow Arbenz. They say he's a communist, he's threatening the power of the landowners, he's he's infringing on private property. Arbenz is not a communist. He's progressive, he's left of the centre, and there are communists in his government, but he was not a communist. He was not calling for the, the total destruction of the landowning elite in Guatemala. He wanted redistribution so that Guatemalans could live well. But nonetheless, you know, we know about the McCarthyism that is beginning to brew in the 50s that is very, very virulent, and that extends to people like Arbenz, even in another country, in Guatemala. Truman initially authorises what is called Operation PB Fortune to topple Arbenz. This is in 1952, and this is through Nicaragua. This is with the support of Somoza, so, of course, the Nicaraguan regime. But the operation was aborted in the end because it got leaked. We don't know how to this day, but the information became public and they had to sort of just put it on the back burner. Now, very sadly, tragically, only two years later, Operation PB Success, the names they come up with are ridiculous, but the CIA called this operation PB Success, is successful. And the CIA arms and funds an exile army. So those generals that fled after the coup in 1944, they are led by Carlos Castillo Armas. So he's one of the conservative generals. And they are funded and financed by the CIA. They receive training in neighbouring Nicaragua and Honduras as well. And they march into Guatemala in 1954. They overthrow the um, the radicals, they overthrow Arbenz, and the conservatives reclaim power. And Armas becomes the leader of Guatemala once again, illegitimately, you know, overthrowing who a democratically elected individual with intense and overt and public US support. We see a couple of thousand people, around 2,000 people killed in the immediate aftermath of this coup. So supporters of Arbenz, indigenous people, um, members of, you know, trade unions, progressive political parties that were finally allowed to breathe in this very, very brief 10 years of Guatemala's history. This is all just immediately shut down again. So Armas bombs Guatemala City. He bombs radio stations that are supportive of Arbenz. Total psychological terror campaign to basically intimidate these people. But what happens is that we see a very, very... And again, as I mentioned, there's this very sort of 
proud tradition among the Guatemalan left of resisting these coups. And we see the beginning of the Guatemalan civil war. Officially, it begins in 1965 because the generals are sort of, they consider this to be a sort of like very low-level counterinsurgency operation in, you know, from 1955 to 65. But really, it's a civil war. And it started in 1954, 1955, and it did not end until 1996. So we're talking half a century of insurrection, of violence. Guatemala is a war zone for half of the 20th century. The coup in 1954 or 52 Can you explain the power of the United Fruit Company at that time? Who were they affiliated with the United States? And was that the major reason for the coup or were there others as well? I'm just wondering the wealth of that company and who was behind it. It's a really important question. Thank you for bringing me back to it because um, I think, as you say, it is important to understand just how influential the United Fruit Company was and still is it's a different name now, Chiquita International. It's the same company, and they still enjoy the same level of influence. They have even more money now. But the United Fruit Company is essentially a state within the state of Guatemala. If you want to use this terminology, it's like a deep state in Guatemala. Through lobbying, it controls the conservatives, and it controls the liberals at this time. Both of these factions are receiving kickbacks from the United Fruit Company, the infrastructure, you can even see it in the way that they build infrastructure for specifically for the United Fruit Company. For example, up until Arbenz, all of the roads, and you can see, you can look at maps of the railroads that were built by Guatemalan governments of all stripes. They go from the port cities where United Fruit Company exports its products to the plantations. That's it. Most Guatemalans cannot use those roads. They're useless. Most of them are private, even if they were to go somewhere of interest to Guatemala's people. It it was just an intense amount of control. I mean, the United Fruit Company, through the land it owned, through subsidiaries, through the influence it had on other landowners, controlled, I'm confident to say, and no one has really put a percentage on these additional things, on these sort of additional, not direct land owned by the fruit company, but over 50%, well over 50% of the land in Guatemala was owned by United Fruit Company. Of course, they had very powerful friends in the US government. And again, it doesn't matter what persuasion they were, Republican or Democrat, they received a lot of lobbying money from United Fruit Company. And it was the United Fruit Company that wanted the coup in the first place. It was not the US government. The US government, of course, protected the interests of their company. And because, of course, there are members of the US government, the Truman administration was the one at the time, but many others since then, and before then as well, they wanted to protect their assets too. But I do want to emphasize that this coup was the brainchild of the company. It was not the brainchild of the US government. The the United Fruit Company Board of Directors went to Truman in the 1950s after the land reform was proposed, and they said, you need to get rid of him. Otherwise, they're going to take our land and you're going to lose money as well. That's why we saw Truman organise two operations. The first one failed, as I mentioned, and then the second one in 1954 that overthrew Arbenz. So really intense control and influence. And the United Fruit Company still has that in Guatemala. It still has that level of control. We haven't seen them in action because there hasn't been a government yet that has been brave enough or that has had the political will to challenge their control over the land. If one ever comes, we will see them in action again. We will definitely see Chiquita, it's now Chiquita International, exercise their influence to defend their interests. 
part of the reason why there's such strong resistance and such a clear ideological strength to the opposition to this coup is because of its origin in the US, its corporate origin in the United States and with the fruit company. Originally, we see the rebels form around this group called MR13 in 1960. Now, this is a student group at first, radical leftist students, and they end up organising a small guerrilla force. And it, it sort of just operates in the mountainous areas of eastern Guatemala for, for some time. It draws a lot of indigenous people to its, to its cause. It gathers a lot of strength. We see really in the 70s, this initial movement sort of sprouts other radical leftist opposition to the coup. So there's the guerrilla army of the poor in the early 70s. The organization of the people in arms is another one, which is all the ORPA. And the guerrilla army of the poor in its Spanish acronym is H&P. These are both communist guerrilla groups that have a lot of strength. They have, you know, membership well in excess of 10, 20,000 people, which is substantial. And there's a lot of these groups operating in Guatemala at the time attacking generals, attacking their allies, raiding the property of United Fruit Company, it becomes a lot easier for them, particularly in 1976, when there's a major earthquake in Guatemala. 25,000 people die. A lot of Guatemala City is reduced to rubble. And the government does nothing. The generals are completely incompetent. They can't respond at all. You know, there's a little bit of change after the coup takes place in terms of who exactly is in charge of the presidency. It, it switches between generals or general-appointed civilians. The entire regime is a coup regime, but the exact nature of the individual in charge at any given moment does change throughout this period. You are listening to the second and final part of the interview with Sasha gillies Lakakis about the history of Guatemala in Central America. So after the earthquake, we see uh, General Lucas Garcia take power in a, supposedly in an election. It's a very fraudulent one. Again, there's only two candidates and the other one is a pro-military candidate. But we see these rebel groups grow stronger and their attacks begin to increase in intensity and they draw more people to their banner because of this earthquake calamity. And you know, people can see that the military is is not working for the people, that they are conducting a campaign of terror throughout the course of this civil war. And I again go back to the report that found out just how many people were killed by the armed forces. So in total, and this is a conservative estimate, 200,000 people were killed in Guatemala during the civil war. Horrific numbers, horrific numbers, some of the highest in Central America. The UN report that was published as a part of the Truth Commission after the conclusion of the conflict suggested that about 90% of those deaths were caused by the army were the result of human rights violations by the Guatemalan coup regime. There's a very pivotal moment that takes place where we begin to see international opinion, Western opinion, maybe turn against Guatemala a bit. And that's in 1980, where we see a group of indigenous Mayans take over the Spanish embassy in Guatemala City to protest the massacres that are happening out in the country. And what does the Guatemalan government do? So keep in mind, in the Spanish embassy, there's indigenous people, there's Spanish embassy workers, and there's some members of the Guatemalan government. The Guatemalan government, or the, the army, sets the embassy on fire and everyone inside dies. It's really twisted that it has to take Europeans to die. But when news gets to Europe and to America that Spanish embassy personnel were killed by the Guatemalan army, 
there's a bit of pressure on them to sort of roll back their support for this regime. The US is bankrolling this coup government, or all the consecutive coup governments. The people begin to say, well, wait a second, they've just like set fire to the embassy and they killed a bunch of their own government ministers and Spanish people. They don't care. People don't care about the Mayans. But this sort of sees the US at least publicly say that you know they're going to reduce support for the Guatemalan army. But most people seem to agree, and there's documents and tables that have been released, including by Julian Assange in WikiLeaks, that show that uh, the US government continued to clandestinely fund the Guatemalan army. But that wasn't known at the time. We begin to see as well that there's a bit of a, a unity beginning to form after this event. This is a sort of a unifying event for the leftist guerrilla groups. In 1982, so only a few years after this embassy incident, the four guerrilla groups, the four main ones, Army of the Poor, which I mentioned, the EGP, the ORPA, which was the Organisation of the People in Arms, and two others, the FAR and the PGT, they merge and they form what is called the Guatemalan National Revolutionary Unity, the URNG. And this coalesces all their members, hundreds of thousands of members, into one organised guerrilla group. The leadership of these guerrilla groups actually had meetings with the FMLN, the El Salvadoran guerrilla group, the FSLN, the Sandinistas, and Fidel Castro, and they came to this agreement, and it was effective. It actually saw the URNG start to win the war. They were actually beating back the generals, taking territory, killing high-ranking officials of the coup regime. And this was beginning to really scare the generals because this was really one of the first coup governments that looked like it was going to be toppled. So what do they do? They bring in their version of the big guns, and that is General Efrain Rios Montt, a retired general by this point. He actually had a bone to pick with quite a few of these coup generals because in an earlier rigged election after the coup, Rios Montt wanted to win. He, he wanted to be the president and other forces didn't want him to because he was very, very extremely Catholic, but really, really indoctrinated to the point where he would publicly chastise generals for not behaving in a religious way. Like, you know, very, very hardline extremist Catholic. But they bring him out of retirement because he has a reputation for being a very effective counterinsurgency leader and they give him the presidency. They say, you need to take charge and just kill all of the, the guerrillas. We don't care how you do it, just get this under control. So he removes, Rios Montt removes these other generals from power after he becomes president, installs his own loyalists and he begins the bloodiest phase of the Guatemalan civil war. We see a campaign of torture, 40,000 people forcibly disappeared. That's not counted in the 200,000 confirmed deaths. And a scorched earth policy. So he just burned entire villages to the ground. And unfortunately, he reclaims, regains a lot of ground from the URNG. He's an incredibly effective and brutal commander. I despise the man, but we cannot discount his military ingenuity or his just sheer brutality that allowed him to sort of reclaim the position of the, the coup regime uh, as compared to the URNG. In 1992, it sort of reaches a stalemate point. The, the coup government of Rios Montt has reclaimed a lot of influence, but they have not defeated the URNG. And the URNG, likewise, is unable to fully oust the coup government of Rios Montt. So we begin to see moves towards a sort of settlement here. 
this is sort of prefaced by the Nobel Peace Prize being awarded to Rigoberta Menchú. She's quite famous around the world. This is in 1992. She's an indigenous author, and she was one of the key activists to essentially bring light to the abuses of consecutive coup governments during the civil war, and in particular, genocide against the indigenous Maya peoples which this absolutely was. Um, even before Rios Mont, there was a targeting of indigenous communities just out of pure racism and also out of the view that they were more inclined to join the guerrilla movements and the radical leftist organisations. By 1996, um, Rios Mont handed the reins to other generals loyal to him. They begin to enter into negotiations with the URNG and in 1996, they agreed to end hostilities. They bring an end to the civil war, and both sides had to make major concessions. The Guatemalan army has to relinquish power and hand over to a civilian government, and they have to investigate the abuses, or the abuses of the military regimes have to be investigated, and that's what leads to the UN Truth Commission, which is where we have that information on the numbers of people killed by the military regime. Now, of course, the URNG, the guerrillas, they have to disarm they do receive some land, those guerrillas, but they also have to yeah, essentially give up any protection they once had, and some of them do get prosecuted in the 90s and into the early 2000s as well. But we see a return to democracy for the first time since the 50s, the first time really in 50 years almost that Guatemala had a democratic election, but they are not fair elections. Because really, who is still controlling Guatemala, even after the coup regimes come to an end? It's the landlords. It's those landowning elite families, including the Aysinena family, which I mentioned briefly before. They continue to call the shots. Since that time, there have been governments of various persuasions in power in Guatemala, some that are slightly left of centre. There are some that are quite extremely right-wing. There are some that are centre-right-wing. They are all part of the Guatemalan institution. They're all part of the elite, or they are funded by the elite. There has not been a single genuinely progressive, socialist, Latin American, genuinely sovereign government in Guatemala since that time. And it's one of the few countries where that has been the case, which is very, very sad because the people want that. Genuinely, the people want that. But, you know, there's all sorts of issues since that time with um, voting. Indigenous people still haven't even registered to vote, the vast majority. So that voice doesn't get heard. In the most recent election this year, Sonia Gutierrez, who's an Indigenous lawyer, she's a member of the Winak Party, which is a very, very progressive left-wing communist party, was disqualified for no reason. So the one candidate that the Indigenous majority may have voted for, she was just eliminated from, from the competition because of the, you know, the corruption in the Guatemalan judicial system. It's owned by the elite. This, since that time, we've seen massive anti-corruption protests. We've seen presidents resign. It never leads to anything because the elite has such a stranglehold on their country. Very recently, there's been some interesting changes. Firstly, I have to say, we've seen a bit of a change in the relationship between the Guatemalan elite and the US government. They're still dependent on the US. The US still calls the shots fundamentally in alliance with the local Guatemalan elite. But we've seen a bit of friction emerge between them. And I don't know what will come of it, but it's become quite a serious issue. And it was talked about a lot in Guatemala, particularly revolving around one case. So the US, doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democratic government, likes to sanction 
what they call corrupt officials in Central America as a domestic political tactic to, to get support for elections, to show that they're being tough on corruption in Central America, they're doing something about the migrant crisis, and they will just sanction so-called corrupt officials. Now, most of the time, these are corrupt officials, and in Guatemala, that is certainly the case. However, the Guatemalan elite is finally sort of fed up with being treated like this because it's actually biting into their money. You know, most of their business transactions are done in US dollars. They're done with banks affiliated with some sort of US mechanism. And it's actually handicapping their ability to make money or to retain money or to use their money easily. And we saw a very, very controversial case earlier this year, actually, or it sort of was brewing at the end of last year and at the start of this year, where US imposed... I guess you could call them Justice Department liaisons from the US Justice Department, but they, they work in Guatemala, called for the Attorney General, Maria Porras, and the President to be investigated for corruption. This is sort of a red line you don't cross in Guatemala. Everyone knows there's corruption, but for a US-imposed justice liaison to try and spearhead an investigation into this cheap, just purely for cheap political points for Joe Biden, was a red line that they crossed. And the Guatemalan elite, Jamate, the president, and Maria Porras, the attorney general, they conspired because they knew if she got investigated and then if he got investigated, they'd go to jail. They would certainly go to jail. They are so corrupt. But Maria Porras expelled all of the US-appointed liaisons from the Justice Department. So for the first time ever, there are no US advisors in Guatemala for the Justice Department. This is a very, very big thing that was talked about a lot in Guatemala, but not so much here. And she was sanctioned. She she is actually sanctioned by the US government as a corrupt official. And the former president is under investigation for that by the US Justice Department. There are changes happening in Guatemala. The elite does have agency and it is maybe deciding that their alliance with the US or their dependence on the US, I should say, is starting to be more problematic than it is beneficial. But we'll see what happens with that. Nothing else has happened since then, apart from, of course, the election. The Guatemalan election was between two people that are not really strangers to politics in Guatemala. One is Sandra Torres. Really, she's seen... Compared to the other candidates, she's sort of seen as the party or the member for the institutions, for the, you know, for the Guatemalan elite. She's seen as like that sort of candidate. She's won five times at this point for election and she hasn't won any. She was, she's the first lady of the former president, Alvaro Colom, uh, who was corrupt as well. So she's not a particularly good candidate, but she's not as extreme as some of the really far right insane Guatemalan candidates. For example, Zuri Rios, who was the daughter of that general I mentioned, Rios Mont. She's a far right, wants to give police the right to shoot anyone on site as, as an official law. Like she's very, very, very extreme, but she didn't win. Anyway, the other candidate, Bernardo Arevalo, who I mentioned was the son of that president from the from the late 40s. He is a member, or he's the head of the centre-left party, Semilla, which means seed, and he won by a landslide, 60% to 39% virtually. Again, he wants to create a sort of progressive, liberal Guatemalan state. He wants some progressive changes, very limited progressive changes, to sort of like public spending. He wants a little bit more public spending. He's a very, his big thing is anti-corruption. He thus far has not really been implicated in corruption. The Attorney General has tried to investigate his party for that, but I'm pretty certain that was just political to try and get him disqualified. He's still very much within the US orbit as far as, pol- as, far as um, foreign policy is concerned. 
He, he still wants to recognise Taiwan. Guatemala is one of the only countries left in the world that officially recognises Taiwan over People's Republic of China. But the Guatemalan elite won't even tolerate these very sort of piecemeal changes. I think the US government wants them because the OAS and the Biden administration both called on Sandra Torres to recognise his victory and to call for the, his protection from any sort of attempted coup or claims of voter fraud, because Sandra Torres has not recognised his victory, and she has said that there was voter fraud, and she is appealing now to the Guatemalan elite to essentially overturn this election. We'll see what happens. I still think Arevalo and him winning, we'll see what happens as well. I, I personally don't have high hopes. I don't think he's going to change what needs to be changed in Guatemala. The fact that he's still pro-US is fundamentally going to handicap any good that he does as far as corruption is concerned. And the fact that the US and the Organization of American States is supporting him is also cause for concern. And I think they're supporting him because now they think they can't trust the Guatemalan elite. It's a very tense situation at the moment, but it's just, it's just a continuing tragedy for the vast majority of Guatemalans, and in particular, Indigenous Guatemalans, who will not be represented by either candidate. It's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of effort from movements like WINAC, that party um, with the Indigenous lawyer, Sonia Gutierrez, and others to sort of really coalesce again, make a concerted effort to overthrow these sorts of um, corrupt institutions and, you know, the legacy of Guatemala's dependency on the US and the legacy of the civil war. And it will happen. As I said, Guatemala has a very proud tradition of resisting. And I'm sure that that time will come, I hope sooner rather than later. And it might be very bloody as it was during the civil war. But, you know, they proved that they could they could win. They technically, they did beat the generals, even though what came after was in many ways just as bad. They did defeat the generals and brought them to the negotiating table. And I'm sure one day they will do the same to the Guatemalan elites. RCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A special broadcast on the evening of the 14th of September. Hear from Chilean and Mapuche First Nations programmers and special guests from Latin America and beyond for a six-hour special broadcast including music, conversation, testimonies and past and current issues. Tune in for stories of resistance, struggle and solidarity. Thursday the 14th of September, 6pm to midnight on your community radio station, 3CR. Todos llevamos dentro un muerto que acompaña. 
You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. For many, the 78th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and three days later, Nagasaki passed almost unnoticed. So much going on. War in Ukraine, fires, typhoons, concerns about AUKUS, even the upcoming ALP conference. But one Australian, John Kiripal, not only remembered, but attended and performed at one of the numerous peace concerts commemorating the dropping on the city of Hiroshima, of the first atomic bomb. Later we'll hear about his time there and the impact on those there on that time. But first, John wrote a short essay on what he termed the sadness that humanity could descend to such behaviour. First, John, it's been a long time, 78 years, but the memories of that day and its significance remain for many, many years to come. I would imagine even today it's difficult to write about the consequences and even more the so-called justification for the devastation those two bombs caused and what followed and what you term the moral collapse into depravity. Yeah, look, it's a very emotional experience and it's still felt by the people there. The commemoration which takes place 8.15 each 6th of August, which is when the uh, bomb was dropped, It was an absolutely massive crowd there, and believe me, it was hot. You're standing in the midst of the heat, this crowd of tens of thousands of people there. The whole city stopped. Uh, The roads are closed off, and uh, police are directing people down to where the commemoration is. But it's a very emotional experience. It's it's 78 years ago, but of course, since that time, the Damoclean sword's been... uh, placed over each of our heads because it could so easily happen again and it has very nearly happened. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a classic example. There was another example of a, of a Soviet colonel disobeying orders to send missiles off. He disobeyed it. He was told to send them off and he refused to. Well, he, that, that man saved us all and I, I can't think of his name, unfortunately, which is shameful, really. He's a hero that, that saved the, the world. You know, in the end, uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev and um, Kennedy played brinkmanship, but in the end, uh, pulled back by secret agreements. Some of the, the agreements were secret and came out later. Uh, removal of some of the missiles in uh, Eastern Europe that were threatening the Soviets in return for removing the missiles in, in Cuba. You know, brinkmanship, when you're playing brinkmanship, there's always a, a massive risk, and, and we play it all the time. We're playing it right now, of course. We're surrounding a nuclear power, China, with nuclear weaponry, and Australia's part of that. And this, this brinkmanship is, is extremely dangerous because we're talking about Hiroshima. That bomb was tiny compared to uh, the bombs we're, we're speaking of now. Take us back to that day 78 years ago, what you've read. And been told. Well, well, it was 8.15 in the morning. 
people actually had, uh, there was an alarm went off because they saw a plane overhead. The alert went off, people took shelter, and then nothing happened. The plane left. But, of course, uh, the bomb had been uh, dropped in a parachute. So it took a, a long time to get down to where it would be detonated above ground. And people, there had been another, you know, all clear, come out. So it, the damage was absolutely devastating because people had come out from the shelters, how, however much those shelters would have protected them. But uh, they come out from the shelters, so that just magnified the damage. There are about 100, the estimates really vary, but we could say 100,000 people killed immediately. And perhaps they were the lucky ones because you can go to the museum there in Hiroshima and you get all these terribly gruesome photos. And I was amazed that children are, are brought through that museum and you see people in the most horrible disfigurations. So they're dying after weeks sometimes of the burns and, and the wounds that they have. And then, of course, there's the radiation, which they didn't really know about. And so the people came rushing in to help. Some of the Japanese people came rushing to help in Hiroshima. Of course, they were irradiated too, and a number of them died from from radiation. So terrible uh, amount of people killed, including uh, prison labour, uh, forced labour. There were 30,000 Koreans there who uh, were killed. You know, we know that uh, Australians were actually near there. Tom Uren, the former deputy leader of the opposition, who became a great uh, advocate for peace. Well, uh, Tom uh, actually saw the bomb, as did other Australians, from where they were being held. But um, mercifully, they, they survived it. It took a while for it to get into the media, is that right? Yeah, the first uh, one that got there, he, he snuck there. Uh, he got on a train and got there before the official contingent of media was going down, which had all been arranged by the US military, who had now um, you know, taken control of Japan. Uh, he first got there uh, illegally uh, on, the, on the on the train. Wilfred Burchard, of course, who I'm referring to, he was absolutely shocked by the, the scene. He described as though a monster steamroller had passed over. It was squashed out of his existence and then went on to talk about the mysterious deaths which were appear were occurring mysteriously and horribly from an unknown something which he called the atomic plague. It was must have been... I know it scarred uh, Wilfred Burchett from his writings, but uh, a terrible thing to see. And you wrote that how rapid was the moral collapse into depravity? It's amazing, uh, because you can go to... Madrid and you can see the famous painting uh, that's if you it helps to be tall like me because there's always a great crowd around it which actually is good the more people see that painting the better that of course is Picasso's Guernica and uh, Picasso painted that Picasso had ambiguous morals to say the least but uh, he was outraged and shocked by such depravity and he painted that uh, painting in 1937 and uh, called Guernica, of course, because that's where the first bombing of civilians, now there have been civilians killed in war before, but not intentionally, but this was an intentional bombing of a civilian city, Guernica, and, it was, and even though it was done by Nazi Germany, well, the depravity of that regime, it was still a shocking thing to happen. No one had ever done anything like that before. 
that's 1937. Like eight years later, we were dropping, and the the good guys were doing this, the so-called good guys, were dropping atomic bombs, atomic bombs, which dwarf the sort of bombs that were then dropped on Guernica. And, of course, before that, we're using conventional weaponry. There had been the bombing of London, of Liverpool, of Coventry, and then, of course, in return favour, the terrible bombings that were inflicted upon um, Hamburg and Dresden and Berlin, among many others. So these cities were effectively flattened. Um, Hamburg, people just died in the tens of thousands by asphyxiation because the fire just sucked out all the oxygen from where they where they were. So absolute fall into depravity. And what makes the fall worse is it's all very calculated. It's not just... Uh, you know, two people meet and get in an argument. One uh, gets carried away and swings a punch. This was all calculated. Um, the bombings were absolutely calculated and calculated in the sense that uh, Hiroshima, just a few hours later, the uh, US Air Force was over the top of Hiroshima trying to ascertain or get the how effective their weapon had been. They were very keen to see that. They couldn't see it. It had been too effective. There was just smoke and ash everywhere. And uh, so they had to come back days later. And then they took photographs to measure the effectiveness of their weapon. Hiroshima had been chosen because it was an ideal place. It was surrounded. If you go to Hiroshima, you can see it's surrounded by mountains. It's in a bowl. And if you get up high in a building there, I was talking to people and indicating there's all the mountains right around Hiroshima. So this amplifies the blast and also been largely undamaged. Now, there's some debate whether it was because it wasn't an important military target. There were certainly Japanese military there. I saw the remains of the military base, which is near the epicentre of the bomb. But it'd been left untouched, probably because it was not that important as a military target. But also uh, because it had been intact, maybe it had been left intact quite deliberately to uh, test this weapon, and that's amplified by the second weapon being uh, dropped on Nagasaki, which is a completely different style of uh, geographical location, and the terrain is, is very different. So that's conjecture, but uh, there are indications in the in the papers, some of them in the museum there at Hiroshima that you can read that indicate this was absolutely a calculated um, action. And Nagasaki, the same? Yeah, Nagasaki is the same. It's a very different location. It's a port city. Uh, Port Nagasaki was only choice number three. If you enjoy going to Japan and seeing Kyoto, which is a magnificent city, you can thank the Secretary of State, Stimson, who stopped them dropping the bomb on Kyoto. They were going to obliterate Kyoto, but he, he being a historian, put the stop to that. But they had a list of four cities and... uh, Hiroshima was the top of those. Nagasaki was number three. They had a, a third city they were going to drop it on, a second city rather, Kokura, which is present-day Hideyoshi and uh, Hideyoshi or Katara, uh, Katara Kokura was uh, spared the explosion because the weather was not good. It was cloudy. They wouldn't be able to see the effect of the, of the bomb. So it was lucky in poor Nagasaki, which ironically was the major Christian centre in 
Japan. So, uh, so much for solidarity with fellow religionists. The so-called Christian nation, the US, dropped the bomb on Nagasaki instead, which is a port city. It's much flatter. So it's a totally different sort of uh, terrain. They could test again the bomb. They were very keen to test how effective the uh, bomb was. And it had little to do with ending the war. Yeah, look, it had little to do with ending the war. The whole the usual thing, and it was put out straight away at the time, was that this ended the war. Well, it didn't. Um, the Japanese military, you know, were always nice fellows. They had a great martial spirit, and they declared that they would not surrender. They will fight on against this uh, weapon. We can still fight on and win the war. This is what military fanaticism does to you. And they, they were determined to fight on. But, of course, behind all this, was, and it's still a current day issue, was the uh, Soviet Union. The Soviets, of course, we always forget about the Soviets. We think that we, from the West, won the war in Europe. Of course, the great majority of the burden of that was borne by the, by the Soviet Union. They finally defeated Nazi Germany. And so they obviously looked to the East and... Uh, Forty years earlier, of course, the Japanese had been the first nation to defeat, Asian nation rather, to defeat a European nation at war in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. So here they saw their chance 40 years later that Japan's on its knee. We can take um, some territory here. And uh, they were probably, well, they declared war finally on Japan one day after the atomic bombs on the 7th of August 1945. They're going to pick up the easy territory. Of course, the US and the Alabama allies knew the Soviet intention. And so uh, that could have been part, well, a major part of why we'll drop this bomb, not as a warning to the Japanese military, but also a warning to the Soviets that we have this horrendous new weapon and uh, you better hold your, your peace, otherwise we could use it against you, because that stage the Soviets didn't have it. And they thought the Soviets would never get this weapon. Well, just four years later, 1949, the Soviets tested their first atomic weapon, and then it was on for, for all this um, the whole series of tests. We carried out atmospheric tests, first by the Soviets and the, and the US, and then some others as well. Britain, of course, one of them, as we know here in Australia, Maralinga, there was really a warning to the Soviets. Well, the Soviets did actually take some territories still and dispute the, the Kuril Islands, which are off the north of uh, Hokkaido in, in Japan. They took a few of those. They still hold those um, islands. And yeah, there, there's never, a, there's still never a, a treaty between Japan and, and uh, the successor state of the Soviets, Russia, on the Kuril Islands, and still dispute there and, and it's a festering sore between the, the two nations. Talk to me John about the concert you performed at, one of many con- concerts I believe. Who invited you and where did it happen? Oh, It was uh, one of the um, residents in, in Hiroshima. It happened in the International um, Youth Centre in Hiroshima which is right in the, the centre of the of the city. It was a, it was a good occasion because um, any concert for peace is, is a great occasion. Uh, so we were able to perform and, and people enjoyed that. And, uh, 
and we enjoyed it as well. So it was well and truly worth worth the trip and uh, a real honour to be invited to perform in, in Hiroshima. The, the concert was the very day before the actual explosion because on the day everyone's tied up with the actual official commemorations. Who was with you? Oh, there's a, there's a group of us. My wife was with me and there's a group of, uh, well, they're actually from the Philippines. There's a lot of Filipinos in, in Japan. So it's a Filipino group of musicians and I participated with them in the, in, in the concert. So it was a, a great occasion and there were people there from all over the world. It was an international youth house and there's a lot of uh, overseas people from Europe, from Africa, uh, other nations in Asia that uh, that are studying in Hiroshima, so it was uh, it was an occasion which was greatly enjoyable. You must have to- spoken to a number of Japanese people, both young and old. What are they telling you? Seventy eight years later, was well, there's still this uh, thing of we should never again. You know, that this should never be done, and you hear that in all the official speeches. The mayor made. A, an impassioned speech, and uh, he was obviously quite annoyed because uh, at Hiroshima, the G7 had just had a meeting about a month beforehand, and they, of course, the pro rata expression of how terrible nuclear weaponry is, but they then justified it on terms of deterrence, and the, the mayor just was not buying into that, and he was uh, quite annoyed in the official statement, which you can find on online, obviously, uh, saying deterrence is, is no excuse, um, that we really need to abolish these weapons. But of course, nationally, uh, we know that uh, Japan has not signed on to the treaty to, to do that, neither has, has Australia to prohibit all nuclear weaponry. But we're still to sign that, uh, that treaty as is Japan. And of course, the ironic thing is Japan is now a part of this whole geopolitical movement to surround China. Uh, and all the risks that, that involves were really dependent on, on China not, not losing it or, or calculatingly uh, saying, look, we're, we're surrounded. We need to do something here. We're, we're so in debt to China and hoping the level heads, you know, which they are at the moment, um, continue to rule in China because if, uh, they are incredibly threatened. Japan is a part of that, along with Australia, of course, the Philippines and other nations in uh, South Korea, in the Asia-Pacific region, this idea of surrounding Japan, cutting off its sea routes, which is all about the South China Sea dispute, of course. The, uh, the Chinese are taking those islands not to cut off shipping routes. They'd be insane. They're the largest trading partners. They want the ship to go through because the US can choke those points very easily. So China are moving to stop that happening. But Japan are, are a part of that. Me, uh, Fukio Kishida is the uh, Prime Minister of Japan. He's actually his first seat he held was in Hiroshima. So there's something really ironic about that, 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 that Japan, along with Australia, are involved in this nuclear brinkmanship after having experienced what they did and all the, the lovely words of, of never again, and you wonder well, how genuine, uh, are, not from the ones who are speaking, but from the national psyche, uh, are those words of, of never again when we are busy planning that we're rearming 
raising our military expenditure twice of what it was before. We're only just waiting now for the self-defence force to be renamed Army, Navy, etc. Uh, and we'll be back to, back to where we were. How would you describe the city of Hiroshima today and how much of it has been rebuilt how it was before? Okay, uh, the centre, of course, the whole lot was demolished. Uh, the atomic dome is the um, building that's what half survived. Uh, it's, it was destroyed. It was an exhibition hall, and uh, that's a famous photo you always see, of course, of Hiroshima. And one other building survived, the Bank of Japan building survived. Uh, you can see why when you see it. It's a very solid building. It survived the blast. No one ever knows about that, and uh, I found out about it and wanted down to where it was. It's, it was shut. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, I gather that there's plans to put on some exhibition in there, but I'm not too sure about that because the big solid doors like banks have were bolted shut and no longer operates as a bank. But uh, immediately after the, after the destruction, it actually did. All the other banks moved into there, into that only one building surviving, and it opened... Uh, or business like two days after the bomb. So you can't stop commerce two days after that terrible destruction. The bank was, well, all the banks were in that building and were reopened, taking transactions again. Surely, though, there was fallout from that bomb in a big area? Yeah, look, the, the fallout, because we're talking about a, a small a small bomb. The, the, the bombs of the Pacific uh, and, and Australia you know, Bikini Atoll, they, they, these nuclear blasts dwarfed the blast in, in Hiroshima. But years and years later, uh, there are still, you know, the, the figures are always debated because someone dies, what do you attribute it to? But then, of course, age has taken just about everyone from that time now, you know, so other than the, the children. But... Um, you know, there are a huge uh, number of people that claim that the radiation affected them, and of course it would have affected a large uh, section of, of the populace, but this is all very much debated and, 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 and questioned. It's very hard to prove that you are a victim of the bomb where you die of radiation and cancer many years, years after the explosion of the bomb. What about the children of those survivors? Have they got the diseases again as well? Yeah, well, the, of course, now the, the children, they're, they're in their 80s, uh, 85, and so the majority of them have, have died. But the, there were a lot of the, the famous one, there's a children's memorial in the uh, Peace Park there, the, the, the Peace Park's well worth visiting. It's just near the Atomic Dome. And uh, you can see in the, the Peace Park, the Children's Memorial, there's a famous story of uh, Sakura of uh, Hiroshima, who was quite all right uh, for a long time and uh, was winning athletics carnivals, the stories told. And, uh, and then she became sick. And as a sort of bargain um, with the divine or whatever, she said, I'll make all these peace cranes you know, out of folded paper, and this is a big thing in, in Japan, making these, these cranes. She made, I think the figure was a thousand. She was going to make a thousand, but out of hope that that would save her. Well, it didn't. Uh, she died, and um, so the children's memorial there, her story's told, and there's all these 
fish cranes that people fold and put in there. And it's a, a very sad story because she is one out of how many. You uh, tend to choose one to publicise, but there were many. And her story is the story which meant that she'd be publicised, of course. But there are many others who who just died terribly. A lot of stories are told in the museum there, dozens and dozens of stories. And you can see the clothing that's their children's clothing as they went to school, their lunch satchels with their lunch still inside, all charred from the, the atomic blast, clothes you know, terribly torn off them and their, their bags and this sort of thing. It's a very moving experience, but... Uh, Probably don't do it in the late afternoon because it's uh, you know, not something you sleep very well after seeing. Mm, I can imagine it had a big impact on you. You had two weeks there altogether, John. How far did you travel? Well, we tra- travelled around a fair bit. There's a rail pass, uh, which if you're going to use it, you better go now because they're going to about double the price of it. So we got the rail pass and... Uh, Went to a number of cities. I'd been to several before, so uh, went to uh, Osaka, which is the second major conurbation, and that's the best way to describe it because it includes Kyoto and Kobe as well. I think there's about 19 million people there, and that's less than than Tokyo. I think that's over 20 million of conurbation there, which includes Tokyo and Yokohama, of course. So we went to Osaka. From there, there's... um, a beautiful place called Koyasan, which is a uh, ancient um, Buddhist centre, which is a lovely way of getting there too. You go off on a, on a, tr- on a little uh, cable car train, which is uh, most enjoyable. It's a bit cooler up there too. Across to Takayama, which is uh, a lovely city. It's had uh, down from there is Sirigawako, which is the famous village where the grass and one form huts because they're massive structures but they're made out of uh, reeds and grass fascinating journey to it is Takayama itself it, it um, seemingly must have been spared a lot of the bombing so the uh, centre of Takayama has all the old old buildings there so that was a lovely place there. Hakone and saw Mount Fuji I thought we weren't going to see that until very late in the afternoon the clouds lifted and I said there it is over there and and so everyone quickly, we were on the cable car, looked and could see it, took about 100 photos of it, seeing which one would come out best. So it was, it was a great experience. Uh, and outside Hiroshima itself, um, there's the famous Tori or, or Sacred Gate. And you go about three-quarter an hour out of Hiroshima, and that's on the coast there, the inland sea, as they call it. So it was, it was a, a great time that... Uh, remember roaming around Nagoya Castle when it was 39 degrees. And I sat there in front of a fan there and the Japanese fellow when the official there came up and said, sit there as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> it was very hot. Oh, well, that's coming for us, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's right. There's a lot of hatred about uh, what this summer's going to bring for us. Uh, hopefully not as bad as they're predicting. Uh, they're probably predicting correctly. Well, thank you once again, John. Thank you, Jan. Always good talking to you and, and uh, your listeners as well. I've been speaking to John Kripal, who who is a Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator and published author of three books.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.